and welcome to this week's Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. The One Malaysia development Berhad scandal, often referred to as One MDB, has been declared by the US Department of Justice as the largest kleptocracy case to date, one of the world's greatest frauds. The Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund was systematically embezzled, with billions of US dollars diverted globally by the perpetrators of the scheme. Around 4.5 billion was allegedly stolen, money that was part of a government-run strategic development fund to help the people of Malaysia, who often have the most basic of living standards. Top politicians, big institutions, bankers and Hollywood names have all been caught up in the scandal. But it's one woman's investigation and determination to expose the wrongdoing which has led to criminal investigations in a number of countries, a government toppled after 60 years in power and convictions. Investigative journalist Claire Rucastle-Brown has dedicated years to exposing the world's biggest heist, often at great personal risk and cost, and is referred to as a legend or DV in some parts of Malaysia. The intricate story is the subject of a new Netflix documentary, Man on the Run, which Claire features in. She's the founder of the Sarawak Report, a journalistic blog focused on environmental and corruption issues in Malaysia, and author of The Wolf Catcher. She's worked with the FBI and others to get the story out, and newspapers all over the world have followed her lead. Yet much of her work was done alone at her kitchen table in London whilst bringing up two boys. Claire's investigations helped uncover former Prime Minister Najib Razak's channelling of millions into his personal accounts from 1MDB to fund a lavish luxury lifestyle and finance Hollywood movies like The Wolf of Wall Street starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Mr Razak is now in jail, serving 12 years for criminal breach of trust, abuse of power and money laundering for illegally receiving about $10 million from the fund. His alleged mastermind, Jolo, who is said to be central to the movement of funds through shell companies and offshore bank accounts, is on the run, wanted for money laundering. Claire, as a friend and a former Sky News colleague of yours, I've been aware for years of how hard you've worked to expose this corruption and I feel slightly ashamed, it has to be said, that it's taken a Netflix documentary to finally get my head around it. But it's such complicated stuff. In layman's terms, how would you describe it? I'm a journalist like you and I'm not a financial brain at all. So I've really not seen any of this in terms of a financial scandal. I started to look into this as a human drama and an environmental catastrophe in the part of the world where I grew up as a little girl. So it was personal to me and in a way a responsibility for me. I had worked with you and others in the mainstream media in Britain for several years and I'd taken a time out to raise my two boys, which perhaps gave me idle time. And not much, I might say, uh, not much as anyone who's brought up children knows, but I had enough time to start looking at something that was personal to me, something I felt responsible for, which would never have been picked up, obviously, in a London newsroom. It was just too far away and too esoteric, possibly. And, and that was the destruction of the Borneo jungle, one of the most important environmental areas on our planet, one of the three great tropical rainforest lungs of our Earth. And having grown up there, I was invited back to talk at an environment conference, actually. And in that trip, for the first time, discovered the magnitude of the environmental disaster and human tragedy that had taken place over the past 30 years under a rapacious kleptocratic government. It was a state, part of the Malaysian state, federal federation. And I felt I couldn't walk away from it. 
people had their lands taken, their forests destroyed, their livelihood removed. And we as a wider global community had lost, almost lost, that was the prize, a place of unparalleled importance to all of us in terms of climate change and natural heritage. So I started to write about it. This was the start of the internet. People in Malaysia were online. They had a democracy, they could vote, but local journalists were oppressed. There was a very oppressive media environment. So I, from my distant perch in London, I decided I would write some of the things that local journalists couldn't because the internet could bring it to the people of Malaysia. And that's when your blog was born, isn't it? Yes, that was back in uh, 2008. I'd done a couple of expeditions out to Borneo. I'd gone to look at some of the logging. I'd been arrested, of course, doing that and thrown out unceremoniously. That's 2008. I've never been able to go back to Sarawak since that time. But I had gauged the situation and made some contacts and I started writing about what was driving this deforestation. And it was quite clear to me as a journalist and indeed to anyone else living in Sarawak, although they couldn't say it, that this was about corruption and abuse of power and resource grabbing at a local level. And it was about a global financial system that was enabling these local kleptocrats to siphon all the money they were stealing from all this resource grabbing out of their home state and into huge billion dollar property investments in our own economies. And I started to look at some of those overseas possessions of these modestly paid officials back in Malaysia. And just to lay that out before the people of Sarawak and Malaysia, how come the chief minister of this state has such enormous foreign wealth? That's where I started. Of course, you're dealing with an opaque financial system, which Britain in particular is particularly responsible for. And that's one of the things I've been writing and campaigning about the offshore system that enables so much money to be stolen and then used by a handful of people who are becoming dangerously powerful in our global scene. And in those early days, Claire, were people at that stage trying to shut you down? Because there you were, a woman working from an apartment in London, saying things that presumably at the corruption levels were hugely unpopular and people didn't want you saying. You bet, Helen. I was perhaps a bit of a naive in that respect. This was the early days of the internet and fake news was just in its genesis, I think. And online PR and black PR operations were developing in those days. So I was delighted that I found myself getting tens of thousands of hits over in Malaysia and Sarawak and massive response, massive comment. I knew I was getting traction and people were at last seeing the facts that substantiated a long-held suspicions about the people who had total control over Sarawak, this state in Malaysia. But very soon, I began to experience unpleasant things, hacking on my website. I'd started a little radio station that was being broadcast shortwave those days, and that started to get interrupted and interfered with via Moldova, of all places. There were all sorts of things going on and there were all sorts of internet sites popping up describing me as a terrible person and defaming me. And there seemed to be a mass of people who'd taken a great hatred to me online, Facebook, Twitter and all the rest who didn't seem to be traceable. And this mysterious state of affairs was explained to me eventually by somebody who contacted me and said, 
Claire, you need to know what they are planning to do to you because I work with these people and I can't allow this to happen. I think you're trying to do the right thing. I was baffled, but I did meet with the person concerned. They presented me with a contract that had been taken out for $15 million. $15 million? Oh my $15 million. And that money was paid to a well-respected TV production and PR company that was based in the UK. And that became a major investigation of itself because I was able to expose what they were doing and close them down. But these people were making tens of millions of dollars. The sort of people I went to university with the guy who was running it. These were fellow Brits and Americans who were making huge sums of money, not just out of Malaysia, but out of numerous oppressive regimes. And famously autocratic global personalities were hiring these people to give them good publicity and to get them onto shows that they were creating for the BBC, CNN, and for CNBC, actually. It was a real scandal. And it gave me my first flavor, I think, of how global and complicit this corruption is, because there are corrupt people in ill-governed countries who are looting these resources from the populations that they should be taking care of and governing honestly. But there are several professional outfits here in the United Kingdom and elsewhere who are providing legal resources, banking resources, wealth management and investment assistance, and indeed communication advice, very heavyweight communication advice and support. And I became the butt of that. This is not just about corruption in, in emerging economies. It's about global corruption and how we all need to keep an eye out for this exploitation of poorly governed countries. You were born, Claire, in Borneo, and I know you had a very happy 10 years, your first 10 years of life out there. What did the country mean to you and, and what was it like growing up in Sarawak? It was a lovely place to be a little girl. We had a beautiful South China Sea to, to play in and behind was a fabulous jungle and a beautiful landscape. And my last memory flying out, actually aged eight, being packed off to school in the UK, was flying down the whole of that enormous jungle island of Borneo and looking out from the plane and seeing this glorious flowering canopy below me. That was what I departed from. And when I came back in 2006, what I saw was square mile after square mile of palm oil plantation instead. And that's an environmental disaster. And I soon found out how the lives of the indigenous people have been affected by this dreadful stealing of their lands and of all the profits. It was all done in the name of helping them, of developing the country. But of course, not a bent penny went back to the local people. And that remains the case. I still run my radio station and still every day we're forced to cover tragic stories of women whose babies die because there's no hospital provision, of people who are stateless because no one's bothered to give the indigenous people of the land status. It's a dreadful state of affairs and someone has to write about it. And you've certainly done that. This started as an environmental investigation. It grew and, and led you to one MDB. Just explain to me how it led to that. And I know it is a really complex story, but how it led you to the then Prime Minister Najib Razak and what was actually going on? You persist with things. I knew this wasn't going to be a short-term project. 
I knew that if I was going to start trying to investigate a scandal on the other side of the world that involved high-level corruption, I wasn't expecting to get involved in national Malaysian issues. I was just looking at the corruption in this particular state. But I'd done rather well at that after a few years. And we had a really stunning local election result where the chief minister of the state, he really came within a whisker of being overturned. Nearly half the electors turned against this guy because I'd proven what a crook he was, which everyone had suspected. And so this was a bit of a juncture because this was the moment for investigations to be made into him, wasn't it, I thought? He'd done very badly in the election. And so I looked to the federal government. There was a lot of cries for him to be investigated for the various corruptions that I'd exposed. But of course, the investigations didn't take place. This particular state provides very important votes, and it was supplying most of the oil that went to the federal government coffers. So I realized that I was actually dealing with a corrupt system that was Malaysia-wide. Of course, I was. The corruption had permeated the entire country and it was top down. So at that point, I became more interested in what the prime minister was up to. He just won very successfully a general election, which he'd been expected to have trouble with for the first time since independence, actually. Malaysia had been run by a supposedly democratically elected government, but it had total control, financial and political control over the country that had not slipped up. And Najib Razak, the prime minister, managed to win the 2013 election blatantly by flooding it with mysterious money that oiled everything for him and smoothed everything out. And it was much talked about at the time, which everyone said was Najib's war chest, his slush fund for the election. And, and it meant nothing very much to me. But the talk was that he'd hooked up with some Arab guys, some young friends of a flamboyant young Malaysian, Chinese Malaysian that Najib seemed to be close to called Joe Lowe. And that somehow these ruffians who were somehow connected to 1MDB were behind Najib's source of funds. I didn't take much notice until 1MDB invested in Sarawak. And I started looking a little bit more closely because one of the business ventures in Sarawak was funded supposedly by 1MDB and it was being managed by Joe Lowe. I started keeping an eye out for information about this. I started reading about Joe Lowe, who was becoming quite famous in Malaysia and indeed globally, because over on the other side of the world, in America in particular, Saint-Tropez, all the hot spots for the glitterati, Joe Lowe was becoming known as the guy who spent most in the bar literally tens of thousands of dollars in the bar. And he was splashing his cash. He was popping up in Las Vegas and spawning articles about his extraordinary parties where the likes of Britney Spears would be invited to sing and dancing girls would be providing the entertainment and serving. And even caged lions and tigers would be laid out around the pool area for people to... to they, these were just bizarre and extravagant events. Everyone in Malaysia was starting to follow his antics quite closely until what really caught my eye in the late weeks of 2013 was his involvement in a movie that was just coming out and being advertised everywhere, which was Wolf of Wall Street. I had been contacted and tipped off by a Malaysian journalist that somehow the Wolf of Wall Street was being promoted back in Malaysia by the wife of the Prime Minister, Najib Razak herself. 
as something that school children should watch in this Muslim country. And that had caused quite a bit of gossip. And so I looked at that and, and it quickly emerged that her son was the producer. Ah, interesting. It was. This was actually Boxing Day that I was started looking at this. And I was going through the internet, Googling away, and very quickly picked up that uh, not only was this son of the Prime Minister supposedly the producer of Wolf of Wall Street, it was very much being said in Hollywood that he was the founder of it. And in every picture for the launch of Wolf of Wall Street was popping up next to Martin Scorsese, Leo DiCaprio, and this young producer was Margot Robbie all standing there and then this fat little Chinese guy called Joe Lowe and it just was like a ping. So here's the guy from 1MDB standing right next to the Prime Minister's son posing as the producers and funders of this $100 million movie. I need to say a little bit more about 1MDB. As as I've been looking at it, it had become clear that there were certain issues with the fund. It had been going by then since 2000 and the accounts weren't being produced. It got through three of the four major accountancy and there was no reporting on where the by then five billion ringgit, one billion dollars that had been raised and, and then more, where it had gone. Nobody knew what it was being invested in. The idea behind 1MDB was that the government would borrow money, billions of dollars, and then it would somehow use its brilliant investment skills to invest this money around the planet and make profits that would then provide development for Malaysia. Now, that's not how a normal sovereign wealth fund works, <laughs> of course. And it had all the kind of hallmarks of a scam. It was an excuse to raise money. And now they couldn't explain where that money had gone. And opposition politicians were starting to complain and say, where are the accounts? What's going on? And Najib had just been stalling for ages. And he was justifying himself by saying, look, this is in the hands of top accountancy companies. Yes, they've been changing a bit. And yes, they haven't quite yet produced the accounts, but this has all been properly managed. We've reinvested it in some Cayman offshore investment special vehicle that we'll give you the accounts for that sooner or later. We've made money so far. All these kind of really unconvincing feedbacks. And of course, they were working with a really gold standard bank, Goldman Sachs. And so everyone's being told, look, hey, this is in the hands of the best. Just lighten up and stop demanding to know where the money's gone. I had already jumped on Goldman Sachs about five months prior to that because I had actually, through my own contacts, because I'd been looking at 1MDB, somebody had slipped me an offer document for the bonds that were being raised to fund 1MDB. Being that it was a scam, the way they were running this scam was they weren't just taking oil money that had already been acquired by the government and, and investing that. But Malaysia already had a sovereign wealth fund based on its oil. So it wasn't that. This was a side number set up by Najib where they were borrowing very expensively on the global market or in fact through Goldman Sachs, a billion dollars and then another billion in order to fund these investments. And that there'd been first a billion dollar bond and then three more bonds were raised, totaling another three and a half billion dollars. You're talking about four and a half billion dollars that was raised through these bonds, the latter of it all managed by Goldman Sachs. And someone had passed me the Goldman Sachs offer document for those bonds. 
And there were lots of very untoward aspects for that. Nobody was getting these offer documents because for some reason, Goldman Sachs had decided that they wouldn't be offering this on the open market. They would be offering it through their own customers. So they would keep it below the line, out of sight, and therefore away from scrutiny in practical terms. And when I saw that offer document, there were so many red flags. They were taking a huge commission. In the end, they took $600 million commission into the bank. It was Goldman Sachs's biggest single ever deal for raising bonds. They were charging top interest rates to Malaysia. Now, for what reason? Why would a country agree to such egregious terms when if they wanted to borrow money, they could go onto the open markets, borrow for a fraction of the price, pay a fraction of that money to the bank that did the job. There were people out there, as I was talking to lots of professionals in the business, gosh, we'd have done it for a fraction of the price. There's only one reason that jumps to mind, which was that it was a crook deal. And therefore, the bank was charging a lot of money. I wrote about that in mid-2013. And I said, the regulators had better look at Goldman Sachs. It was not what many mainstream newspapers would dare to say. But I felt I had the evidence and I damn well said it. And 48 hours later, Goldman Sachs hadn't come after me. So I reckoned I was probably right because they're very <laughs> litigious. I'd got onto that sort of seam, as it were. By the time I found out about Wolf of Wall Street, by the time we knew that the money had gone missing, I started writing specifically about 1MDB. And my question was, could any of that missing unaccounted for money, the billions that aren't being accounted for from 1MDB, could any of that have gone into the $100 million movie that appears to have been funded by Joe Lowe and the son of the Malaysian Prime Minister. And that was when I got my first set of very aggressive libel actions from a Malaysian establishment. They hired some top Hollywood lawyers to threaten me. It just is extraordinary, Claire, because I've already mentioned, but I know you were bringing up your boys at the time and, and you were this lone ranger really working to uncover all of this. Just going back to Goldman Sachs, the bank did face charges by the Department of, of Justice. Some people went to prison, didn't they, just to finish off on that thought? Yes. They had to admit to the crime of having stolen and laundered these billions of dollars. Um, they're under a deferred prosecution agreement, whereby if they go and do it again, they could be hauled through the courts in the United States. But they have paid a fine of 2.9 billion to the Department of Justice. They've paid a fine of 2.5 billion to Malaysia, which isn't half what they should be paying to Malaysia, given that the costs of this disastrous borrowing and theft to the taxpayers of Malaysia. They've had to admit guilt. And indeed, some of their lower personnel in the bank, the head of Southeast Asia. Goldman Sachs has had to plead guilty to conjuring up this scam and stealing hundreds of millions for himself. And a colleague of his has been found guilty in a court in New York for working with him on it. Personally, I say it all the time, this went right to the top of Goldman Sachs. And there was no way that the very top people in Goldman Sachs were not aware that the bank was up to something very rotten indeed that was giving them and their colleagues the biggest bonuses they had ever got. And I've said that many times and they've never been able to refute that. Perhaps a rather naive question, Claire, but how can these things happen at such scale in plain sight? 
I think our profession, its weaknesses are very exposed along with many other professions by this whole affair. These issues are lamentably underreported for a number of reasons. It was a huge story. It involved a lot of my time and focus. And that's something that mainstream media organizations don't have much of. Reporters have to churn out stuff. But there's more to it than that. Large media organizations, they don't want to rock the boat. They're part of a system. The major financial newspapers and news providers are relying on advertising, on clientele from the very financial systems and banks and companies that are perpetrating a lot of what is going on. And indeed, when I first started trying to get this story out, news organizations would say to me, we can't really report on this. We'd get kicked out of Malaysia. We wouldn't be able to do our valuable work. This is the biggest story in Malaysia. You don't want to be kicked out for economic reasons that are to do with your own business. It's not that you're trying to do good work if you're not covering the very biggest story there. So, 1MDB to me revealed so many weaknesses across our whole system, really, of global management, whereby enormous corruption is being allowed to continue unfettered. Was one of the giveaways for you, Claire, when you talked about Jolo and what he was doing in glamorous places? What about the Prime Minister Najib Razak's lifestyle? Yes, indeed. Like any Malaysian politician, he lived beyond his visible means. But actually, I think this is really where we should introduce a character we haven't mentioned yet, which is his extraordinary wife. Rosma Mansour makes Imelda Marcos look like a total amateur when it comes to shopping and gross expenditure and waste and all the rest. She didn't collect shoes. She did. But her real fetish was Hermes handbags, of which she literally had hundreds. One handbag would be in the region of a quarter of a million dollars each. She literally had shed loads of these handbags, which was a very obvious way of her flaunting her wealth. And the other thing she was really into was just the mass purchase of diamonds. She particularly liked pink diamonds. And Jolo, whose influence came through Rosma, that's how he was attached to Najib, who's a young guy. His mother had known Rosma back in the day. They'd worked together before Rosma had identified Najib and married him as a second wife and propelled him, as many felt, into office as prime minister. She was always regarded as the pants in the household and the power behind the throne and the real driven person. And Joe stuck close to Rosma. She was keen on Hollywood. That was a large part of why the whole Hollywood escapade opened up. And he would buy diamonds for her. And quite a lot of stories. I went to Hong Kong and covered how he'd gone around and bought shed loads of diamonds for her in Hong Kong. And all this eventually was to come out when the whole roof came crashing down on their enterprise and the FBI started looking at how the money was spent. Half a billion dollars worth of the stolen one MDB money went on jury for Rosma. Also a super yacht, I think, was involved there. I'm sure the FBI uncovered that as well. But how did you get involved, Claire, with the FBI? What was that moment for you when you started communicating with them? There was a whistleblower 
I had been looking in and I've been battling with this story. I started identifying more and more possessions and assets, including huge Beverly Hills mansions. I spotted the super yacht, all this that was coming from these young guys involved with 1MDB, including Rosmer. I had great fun for about six months being sued at the same time as writing about this glaring expenditure that couldn't be explained. And of course, I was asking all the time, as Jonas does, any more on the 1MDB stuff, looking for any more information. And someone came to me and said, there's somebody approaching opposition politicians in Malaysia, and I can give you their details. He seems to think he's got some inside information. And I looked at a little taster document that had been given to my intermediary, and I'd been covering 1MDB long enough to recognize that this guy knew about the people that Joe Lowe was working with in depth. These were two Arabs. One was actually a son of the King of Saudi Arabia, and another was a sort of Saudi Arabian guy living in Switzerland. And they were partners together, old school friends. And they had a company called Petra Saudi, which had gone into some weird joint venture with 1MDB, through which a whole lot of the money that had been raised had disappeared. It was all dead suspicious. And now I had a whistleblower from that company. And I know him well now. He's, his name was Savio Giusto. He'd worked with these guys. He'd fallen out with them spectacularly. And he'd become very suspicious of what they'd been up to. He hadn't been kept in the know. He knew something was going on. And he got hold of their server and all the data. And after about six months of trying to persuade Savio to give me this material, he finally passed it to me and to another colleague of his, another big news organization in Malaysia. That actual news organization couldn't publish any of the stuff in any detail, but I was safe in London. So I went through and I published so much of this data, which showed how the first 700 million out of the first billion dollars that had been supposedly invested in 1MDB via this joint venture with Petra Saudi had been stolen into a company called Goodstar Limited, based in the Seychelles, owned by Joe Lowe. It was there that I had the story, and so I published that. So what was I going to do with a huge story like that? I'm just one little blogger in Malaysia. This was a global story. It was a massive theft. And so I went to the Sunday Times, who were very interested at first. And I also got back in touch with the FBI. I had been talking to the Department of Justice and FBI about my previous exposés over the years because it had become plain that the Obama administration had been getting increasingly and justifiably concerned about global kleptocracy and the corruption of our own systems that this is causing. I covered so much in this enormous affair, but a lot of the money, as I was discovering, was going into buying political support in Europe and in America. And indeed, hundreds of millions subsequently went to the chairman of the National Republican Committee to try and close down the investigations by the DOJ. So I brought this initial theft of 700 million. I got my contacts on the phone and I said, look, I can prove 700 million got stolen from the Malaysia's 1MDB by this guy, Joe Lowe. Is that a big enough sum for you to be interested in? <laughs> and the reason why I wasn't sure was because I'd already first gone to the National Crime Agency, Serious Fraud Squad in Britain, who had told me they were just too busy and it was austerity and they didn't have enough money to chase financial fraud. So I'd been sent away with a flea in my ear by them. But luckily, the Americans were more interested and they flew over to London and they debriefed me. And so then I had a situation where I'd got a major newspaper organization interested. 
And I had the DOJ, FBI looking into this. And I thought, okay, this is my strategy. This needs to be taken out of my hands to a certain extent. That was my strategy. In Malaysia, Claire, I would imagine you're seen very differently by very different people. There are parts of Malaysia and people who know you as Claire and see you as a, a DV, which I think is a legend, and you can correct me if I'm wrong there. But on the other hand, at the minute, you're not allowed back into Malaysia, even though there's been a change of government. There was a change of government in 2018. So tell me a bit about how you are seen in the country that you were born in. There are people who are invested in the corruption and they don't like me very much. The Prime Minister Najib is now at the end of this very long tale. He ended up in jail because of the expose. It took a very long time, five years, between me kind of stumbling on what was going on, getting the FBI interested and starting to get media to cover it, and him finally ending up behind bars. But obviously, when you're splashing $5 billion around, you find a lot of friends and supporters and your party's very fond of you to a large degree. Those sorts of people are very against me and they have a lot of money and power and they've been able to make my life quite challenging. On the other hand, there are people in Malaysia and I hope they're, they're in a majority. They're certainly very supportive and make me feel that what I'm doing is worthwhile, which is hugely important. They would like to see reform. They're very angry to see how their country has been damaged by such extensive corruption. And they're furious that money that could have educated children, saved lives and developed their economy and roads that were needed are going into the quite disgusting lifestyles of the people who stole that money. So I guess they're in favor of me. And there are a lot of powerful people that aren't. I've had a lot thrown at me, but you haven't lived unless you've been sentenced to jail. And as of yesterday, I don't know if you picked up, but a Malaysian court sentenced me to two years in jail for alleged criminal libel, which is not something obviously that exists in the UK. But I was tried and charged and sentenced in absentia without my even knowing that there was a court hearing going on. And two years in the clink should I get caught by the Malaysians. And they have a very unfortunate habit of, this would be the third time I've had various kind of warrants issued against me. They tend to go to Interpol and request a red notice alert, which decent countries would issue against perhaps a terrorist or a murderer or someone who's dangerous. Journalists like us are quite often are the target of an abuse of this. And if they can get your name onto various alert databases around the world, particularly Interpol, then they can make your life quite difficult if you want to travel. So that little bit at the moment at the border where you wonder whether whichever country you're going through is, has got you on their list to be arrested. So that is a challenge. I'm safe in Europe. Any Malaysian journalist who was trying to write about the things I write about would have long since had their life destroyed and several have been put in jails. That in a way justifies what I do as a nosy foreigner. Quite a lot of people like to call me that. There are many more who say, look, you can do this and we're really grateful that you do. I'm in awe of how you've dedicated so many years to trying to expose all this. I just wondered how supportive your family have been, because obviously there have been worrying times. If you're listed on that list almost as a terrorist and then you've been sentenced with you not there to two years in jail, and I'm very glad to see you turn up in one piece on the podcast today. But have they really understood? Because I know you've been trying to jiggle work and family life in your investigations. And I can see as a journalist why you've been like a dog with a bone on this and why you will not be intimidated and let it go. But have you had a lot of support from family and friends? Yeah, I'm 
my poor husband and my poor boys as teenagers i think there were quite a lot of moments where they had a right to be frightened when things got really bad what happened was i exposed the whole thing on najib and immediately 15 million on the previous case forget it i had a state they were after me luckily the fbi had got onto the case over in, in america but they did their thing and there's no way a journalist is going to get access to an official investigation i just had to wait and hope that they completed that investigation and it took over a year and during that time, I was on my ONIO in London. Most of the mainstream media were chased off the story by aggressive legal action threats. I was being depicted by lawyers who were talking to media organizations as a madwoman paid by the opposition. I was manipulating the evidence, you name it. I was vilified. So pretty much on my own. What happened to my whistleblower within a couple of months? Trumped-up charges against him were brought in Thailand, where he was unfortunately living, next to Malaysia. A lot of influence that Najib had there. And Xavier, my whistleblower, was thrown in a Bangkok jail where he languished for 18 months. We all felt dreadful about that. First, I was in contact with his wife, and then she was siphoned off. They told us she mustn't talk to me, otherwise things would happen to him. She was kept under a kind of house arrest by these people who were hired by Petra Saudi and their collaborators in Thailand. We went through just a nightmare year where warrants for my arrest were issued by Malaysia. And sitting there in London, it became very clear that I was being hacked. PR firms were being hired to have massive black PR operations against me. The one thing they did do was give me a profile for millions were spent on making me a famous internet figure, which you have to try and take on the chin and say all publicity is good publicity. I tried to use that to my advantage. At least I was getting the noise out there about what was going on. And I began to realize nonetheless that I was clearly being followed. Private detective agencies were hired. It's all come out now. PR agencies were hired. And I discovered and I could feel that I was being tagged in the streets. And threats were coming through, obviously, on the internet. And there were some incidents. I remember my younger son, aged 16 at the time, marching me to the police station on one occasion because it was so obvious that we were being followed. And we'd been sitting having a cup of coffee and we just said, look, this is, you've got to go and say that you're being harassed. Because I think they were doing it on purpose to make me frightened. They were being open about following me. So I went to the local police station. <laughs> I don't know if the police and the journalists get on very well, but the response at that time was, you're a journalist, aren't you? Malaysia. Isn't that what you let yourself in for, then, if you start getting into that sort of story? <laughs> so I was kicked back out. And anyway, I, I used to stand with my back against the wall in the tube, let's put it that way. But I never did get anything too dangerous or terrible happen to me. I was safe enough in London. Thank goodness. So you said that former Prime Minister Razak is, is in jail now. I think he's serving 12 years. And Jolo is on the run, isn't he? Yes. What eventually happened was that the FBI brought their case. The Department of Justice issued a statement. It was a sort of devastating statement where they issued a court filing to seize all the assets. And they'd done the job I couldn't do, which was to pierce the corporate and offshore veil and trace the money through the international system. So I'd been able to say, it's disappeared from here. It's popped up there. Is this the same money? And I've been writing every day. There'd been clues and hints and leaks that I'd been writing about. But here was the definitive, this is the banking trail. 
of how this $5 billion had been stolen and how it had been spent. And it, it was shocking. And we'd already identified the banks that were involved. Goldman Sachs was one. There were about 20. And they had all deliberately and culpably turned a blind eye. Several banks have faced obviously not big enough punishments or fines, but they had to admit malpractice. And they did it because there was so much money and they thought that Najib had so much power and control within Malaysia that they were safe. Najib was the finance minister, prime minister. He controlled 1MDB. He was the sole shareholder and signatory of 1MDB. I think most of the banks who got involved and took high fees for helping transmit that money and somehow failing to issue the suspicious transaction notices that they should have done, they thought that they were dealing with a powerful prime minister who could control any fallout within his own country. And so they could hide it. And I think this is going on all over the world. This is why I think it's such an important case. And it's why I stuck with following 1MDB for so long, because I am convinced or I know any journalist in this field knows that this was a perfect case study of what's happening everywhere of how badly governed countries where populations are vulnerable, where you have authoritarian, over-centralized elites controlling the country. This is what is going on. The money is being taken and the international finance system is happily assisting the process. This was in black and white in the court filings and that really put the heat on Najib then. Suddenly I was the one that had the clunking fist, (laughs) the FBI punching behind me and Najib was on the run. Jolo had long since gone on the run. Actually, Jolo went on the run just a few weeks after my first story, which was in 2015. Najib didn't get caught up with until last year. He was finally jailed. But Jolo knew that he needed to run. He ran to China, and that's where he still is. I think what really brought an end to this, and and rightfully, was the 2018 election. Najib had to go back to the polls, and the whole point of bringing all this information to the Malaysian public was to give them the power of information, the power of knowledge to make a decision. And for the first time in 70 years, the Malaysian election got together sufficiently and agreed that they were not going to have this government any longer. And Najib and his UMNO party, which had ruled Malaysia since independence, was unceremoniously kicked out of office. And the next government set about prosecuting Najib. That's where the journalist fits into this. The Malaysian public, they did the deed. They voted out a corrupt government. As we wind to an end, Claire, and I think you've done a marvellous job in the length of a podcast to tackle the whole story. And obviously, we've scratched the surface in a way, but I feel like we've had a real flavour of your life and your life as an investigative journalist. But I just wondered how you felt about the Netflix documentary, because again, a documentary of that length can presumably scratch the surface, but at least it's brought the story out, hasn't it, to millions of viewers all over the world? Yes, there's been quite a lot of publicity about this story, but I think so much of it has been about the finance, about the scale of the theft, about the politics. And I think it's so important. I I think the Netflix Man on the Run documentary really set out to achieve that. It's actually about the human effects of these sorts of massive corrupt acts by people who are abusing the trust public office. And the Malaysian situation has just been a perfect example of just how much pain and suffering 
that greed, irresponsible kleptocracy can bring. And I started from the bottom up. I didn't start with the data. I started with the consequences, the wiping out of a rainforest, the marginalization of people into extreme poverty by those who were stealing what they had. And by countering that injustice, by looking at the corruption that was behind it, and then holding those people finally to account by exposing them. That's what I felt was important. That's why I did it. And I think the documentary really worked hard to explain why it matters that we really confront this level of crime in society. And that more transparency is needed. It's all about transparency. And we have protected this opaque offshore system And we've allowed it to get out of control and to become an enormous part of our global financial system where there is no accountability and no way of being able to understand who owns what. And it's just perfectly set up to enable corrupt practice and abuse of power. It's designed for that purpose. And we're managing it. Our professional classes in Britain are managing this whole system. And it's on our conscience. And the thing is that although it's harming the peoples of countries like Malaysia, it's also harming us because that money comes through the offshore system and into our economies. And it starts to corrupt and skew our societies as well. Politicians are on the take. Property prices are becoming stupendously overinflated in capitals like London, where no one from Britain can sensibly afford to buy anymore. This is because of a huge influx of criminal cash that is being concealed by the offshore system. Claire, thank you so much for taking time to recount the story. And I know that you're always a bit time poor because you've always got things going on and you're a busy lady and investigative journalist work is never done. But I just <laughs> want to say a massive thank you. And I'm glad we did eventually get round to sitting down. Extraordinary work. It's such a big story and it's always very difficult to get down to the detail of it. But some of what was at stake may, I hope, got through. And I thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to talk about it. It's a pleasure, Claire. You've been listening to investigative journalist Claire Rucastle-Brown, author of The Wolf Catcher, founder of The Sarawak Report, and the journalist at the heart of uncovering the one MDB fraud and conspiracy, which is thought to be the world's biggest fraud. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week with another inspirational guest, I'll see you then.